Well, from what we've learned already, we know that ultimately the place doesn't matter. The place of worship is wherever the church family gathers to do what God has called them to do. So, can the place of worship be beside a river in the Amazon jungle? You bet. Can it be on the 37th floor of a high-rise in Shanghai? Yes. Can it be in a really, really expensive cathedral? Yes. It doesn't ultimately matter. So, I think your notes say, the place of gathered worship is wherever true worshipers gather to draw near to God as a church family. Once again, I'm getting really good at stating the completely obvious, right? Uh, And yet it's amazing how often things have gotten off track in some of these areas. Okay, having said that, that doesn't mean, however, that the Bible says absolutely nothing or gives us absolutely no principles about the place where we gather. Um, There's a book, there are several just wonderful books on worship that I'll mention as we go along. Daniel Block has a book called For the Glory of God. And if you want exhaustive biblical treatment of every question related to worship, he does it. So he's got a chapter on the place of worship, and he starts in Genesis with the Garden of Eden, and he talks about everything all the way through Revelation. Um, it, is, it is remarkable work. I will not do that this morning, but I'm just making you aware that that's there. Here are 15 brief thoughts about church gathering places. And number one might strike you as a little bit odd, but I think it's important um, to bring it up. Number one, Christians sometimes express excitement about the plans for a temple in Jerusalem because of their excitement about the prophecies of the Lord's return. You know what I'm talking about, right? The Dome of the Rock is on the Temple Mount currently, but there are plans for if God were to allow the building of a temple there. It's good to be excited about that. It is important we have this one little asterisk by it, though. The reason why we're important is because we're excited about Jesus coming back, not because the ultimate goal is temple worship in an earthly temple. Does that make sense? Revelation 21, there is no temple there in the new Jerusalem and new heavens and new earth. So um, we are not a people, as Christians, we're not a people stuck without a temple right now. We have the true temple in Jesus Christ. We are the temple of God when we gather. Now, when I read the book of Daniel, it sounds to me like there's a temple there when Jesus comes again. And so I'm on board with the excitement about the potential of a temple there, but not because I'm a man without a temple right now. (laughs) I've got all the temple I need, though I'm excited about Jesus coming again and keeping his promises to the nation of Israel. I don't know if that makes any sense, but number two, a church should not use a lavish gathering space. So I'm getting just three negative things out of the way here at the beginning. Number two, don't use a lavish gathering space to prove God's blessing on that church or to suggest that God will bless the attendees with similar prosperity. The very first time I ever came to California, Crystal and I visited the TBN studios in Orange County. And everywhere you look, it was gold, 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 gold. It was absurdly lavish. Why? To communicate, look how God has blessed us and how God will bless you if you give to us. Um, That is a terrible reason 
for a lavish gathering space. Number three, a church gathering space should not try to imitate worldly gathering spaces. I talked to a a man who was involved in in college ministry at a church uh, a while back, and he talked about how their church's college ministry would set up the auditorium to look just like a dance club and play secular dance music, and they would set up a bar where they would serve no alcohol, but it looked like it. It felt like it. And they would do that to reach college students for Jesus. Uh, the, the church is a holy people set apart for God. You do not reach people for Jesus by taking the places where the world celebrates sin and trying to make church look like them. And that's number three. Don't try to imitate worldly, and, and I mean sinful, gathering spaces. Number four, a church should not give the impression that the size, quality, or beauty of a facility can reassure attendees about their relationship with God. Remember that in Israel's history, one of the reasons why God allowed the temple to be destroyed, profaned, and then destroyed was because the people said, we have the temple. We're good. And God said, if that's the way you're going to think about it, then goodbye temple, because you're not good. You're not right with God. They said, we have the temple of the Lord. And God said, I'm going to take away the temple because you don't have the Lord. You just have the temple. So you can't reassure people that because we have this great building, I'm okay with God. Number five. All right, here we get into the the positive principles. Number five, because it is essential for the whole church to gather, as we've learned about recently, sufficient space is a very high priority. So in this day and age when real estate is so expensive, Um, churches rightfully place a very high priority on simply finding a space big enough for all of us. It might be unideal in a lot of ways, but if we can all fit in it, that itself is fantastic because the whole church has to gather. And could we gather outdoors here in Southern California? Yes, we could, Um, but it would have a lot of challenges. And so to have a roof over your head, enough room for a whole church family is a tremendous thing to thank the Lord for and a really high priority. Um, because we have to all gather. Number six, because the church family has God-given priorities to carry out when they gather, functionality is a very high priority. Uh, Daniel Block points out that the Old Testament tabernacle was an amazing combination of beauty and functionality. It had this incredible beauty to it, and yet you could pack it up and go move it to another place in the desert. And... That's because God's people had to be able to take it with them and worship on the go. And so we don't have, well, we used to know what that was like as a church family, didn't we? We put it in a trailer. Um, So it just means that things like classrooms and seats that can be rearranged and, and things like that are very important because God says we've got to do some things together. And so we've got to ask, does our facility help us do those things together? That, that's really important. Number seven, because of the centrality of verbal ministry, acoustics and other aspects that support clarity are, are important. So, for example, I know a church. There's a church that's beloved to me, actually. They have a huge window right here behind the pulpit. Unfortunately, it's also right where the planes come into land at an airport. And so while the preacher preaches, planes come by right behind him. (laughs) Not great for clarity. When we were working on this building and we were working on the sound system, one of the things that it was a little hard to communicate to the people who were helping us was we want a room where people can hear each other sing. 
Because what acoustic designers are used to designing for churches today is a room where the sound all comes out of the speakers and then gets absorbed by all the rest of the room. So that you can crank your band as loud as you want it, and, but then you don't get the feedback and everything from the sound coming back. The problem is if you create a room like that, then if you try to call people to sing, everybody's like, nobody's singing. It's not that nobody's singing. It's that the room was built to absorb all of that sound. And so our sound engineers in this room had to try to work a balance between uh, uh, a room that's dead enough for us to preach without terrible feedback, but a room that's alive enough for you to hear each other sing. Like when we sang Blessed Assurance without instruments this morning, you could hear people, right? Um, That's because we left this room uh, alive. Um, Number eight, because of the importance of the mutual ministry of the entire church family, Space for fellowship matters. So as important as preaching is, a church is not merely a lecture hall nor a concert hall. It's also a little bit like a living room because the family gathers here, right? And so we want a functionality of space that allows us to preach allows us to all sing together, but also then facilitates family life in all, all the other ways. And this, this facility is not great for that, but we've been creative with our parking lot to help make that happen. And we, you know, we didn't put pews in here. Uh, we put in here cho- chairs that can be moved around, and that's part of the reason why. Uh, number nine, the size, appearance, and placement of the pulpit may be used to try to suggest truths about the word, the preacher, and the hearers. Suggest is all we can say there. They can't, the, the pulpit can't actually preach by itself. Um, and there is a long history of this. I'm not nearly enough of a historian for that, but just a couple of examples. Some of the reformers, so, so you know, in the, in the 16th century, churches would have been much narrower than this. Long and narrow would have been almost entirely the norm. And some of the reformers took the pulpit and moved it to the side of the long wall so that it put the preacher right in the middle of the people in a much more significant way. And that was to try to communicate that the word is accessible to you. If you've just been hearing the, word, the service in Latin and you have no idea what's going on, we want you to know that the word is accessible to you. And, and it also was, they were trying to communicate that the preacher was not above the people. Some churches in Reformation France placed the pulpit in the middle of a circular gathering to try to symbolize the centrality of the word. Whether that was a good idea or not, I don't know. But the point was they were trying to suggest something by doing that. And then some early American churches had two pulpits. They had a high pulpit and a low pulpit. And the high pulpit was only used for scripture reading and preaching, and the low pulpit was used for everything else. And again, they were trying to communicate something, suggest something by their, by their pulpit. So again, all it can do is suggest, and there are limits and weaknesses to all those things. I'm just giving you examples of ways in which churches have tried to think um, actively about what uh, the... There's more to the message than just the word spoken, right? And so you can communicate by some things like that. Number 10, the placement of a worship leader and musicians may suggest the focus and purpose of gathered worship. And we could also start to get into things like lighting and other, other things that, that suggest some things about what we're doing and who it's about. 
Number 11, because local churches should include a wide variety of people, the physical accessibility of the gathering space is, is important. Number 12, because local churches often pray that guests, including non-Christians, might attend their gatherings, it's ideal if gathering spaces are warm and welcoming. Is it easy to go to a new place? <laughs> like the first time you ever go to even something like a restaurant, the first time you walk through that door, it's just a little uncomfortable. It's easier the second time and the third time and the fourth time. And so to whatever degree to which we can be warm and welcoming in what we have as a facility, the better um, for people who may walk in. Number 13, in a world of disorder and ugliness due to sin, beauty and order in a gathering space can honor God and bless his people. So the tabernacle was beautiful. The temple was beautiful. The new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21 is beautiful. It's not just functional. The original creation in Genesis 1 was beautiful. And the remnant of that continues today. So God's creation is supposed to be beautiful. Sin is what creates ugliness. Um, and so beauty can honor God and, and can be a blessing to his people when they're living in a world that's ugly because of sin. Number 14, in a profane world in which nothing is sacred, at least the way the world sees it, beauty and order in a gathering space can suggest transcendence. And again, it can only suggest a gathering space can't preach truth, but it can suggest that there is a holy transcendent God, that not everything is just a joke and light and frivolous and to be made fun of and, and profaned. And then number 15, in a world of idolatry, and misplaced priorities, the generous gifts of God's people to allow for a quality gathering space, and quality would mean all those things we've been talking about, can honor the God who is worthy of our best. That is not to say that the more expensive your facility is, the more God is honored. That's not necessarily the case. But Haggai chapter 1, they're supposed to be, the, the turned Jews are supposed to be rebuilding the temple. And God, through the prophet Haggai, says to them, why is it, and I, this is my own words, but it's what Haggai 1 says, why is it that you're at home paneling the walls of your houses while the Lord's house is in ruins? Why is it that you're continuing your home improvement projects while ignoring um, what the, the temple of the Lord? Now, of course, that's Old Covenant temple, and so in some ways that's different. But the principle there that Paul was, I mean, that Haggai, God was going for through Haggai is that we can take what God gives to us and give it back in a way that greatly honors the Lord. And if, when it comes to the quality of a space for the church to gather, we say, uh, let's just cut every corner we can possibly cut so that we can have every penny we can possibly have to use elsewhere, at home or in our own lives, we're really missing an opportunity to glorify God by caring about these things that we, that we have here on our list. Hopefully that makes sense. I'm trying to walk a little bit of a knife edge there um, between on one hand saying, who cares, nothing matters. And on the other hand saying, the more money you spend on a facility, the better. Neither of those things is true. That's not, that's not the point. All right, how do we do? 15 thoughts on facility. Gathering space is what I'd like to say rather than facility. Okay, let's talk about when for the rest of our time. <laughs> the time of gathered worship. 
Is there a particular day when Christians must gather for worship? And this is an extremely complicated question. There have been differences of opinion about days all the way back to the very first churches because Paul writes about it in both Romans and Colossians. So two different parts of the early Christian church. We know in both places there were disagreements about days. So the history of this is extensive and complicated. Here goes my attempt to simplify about why we meet uh, when we meet. So obviously we meet as a whole church family on Sundays. We do other things some other times, but our whole church gathering are Sundays. We don't teach that Sunday is necessarily the new or the changed Sabbath day. Now, I'm not saying that you couldn't believe that, and some in our church family may believe that, but you've never heard us teach that. Um, that Sunday is the new Sabbath or the, the changed Sabbath from the seventh day of the week. And we don't require that our members all hold to the same view of the Sabbath for the New Testament Christian. Um, again, that's something you've never heard taught or preached here, that there's one particular view of the Sabbath that all believers must hold to. So that's, that's just to try to be clear from the beginning about what, where we're coming from. So let me back up now and explain why that is. So first of all, um, let's go back to the Sabbath commandment. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day. And that word Sabbath probably means something like to cease or to stop. It, so it's probably referring to the resting. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. So the seventh day was set apart to rest. Now, here's the other thing. It was set apart to rest and to remember. And it was set apart to remember two key moments. Here in Exodus 20, if we went to the next verses, it's remembering the original creation. And in Deuteronomy 5, when the fourth commandment is repeated, it is set apart to rest and remember redemption, the exodus from, from Egypt. So the seventh day was set apart to rest, to then remember creation and redemption. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. You can see then that both well, if you think of that as three things, uh, rest and remembering creation and remembering redemption, all three of those things pointed ahead to Christ. As Paul said, Colossians 2 verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So does rest find its fulfillment in Christ? That's exactly what Hebrews 4 says. Does creation find a fulfillment in Christ? He is the one who brings new creation through his death and resurrection. Does redemption find a fulfillment in Christ? Of course, he is the ultimate redemption to which the Exodus was pointing. So rest, redemption, and new creation are all ultimately found in Christ. So then, what should New Testament Christians do about the seventh-day Sabbath? I hope you can see at that point why it's a question that Christians have come to different views on, um, because it's not simple. We have Old Testament command that gets roots right back in creation, and then we have New Testament fulfillment in Christ, and don't fight about days, the New Testament says clearly. So what should we do about the Sabbath? 
Um, my point's not to resolve that today. I couldn't resolve it for you even if I tried. Our church doesn't require that our members agree about that, that our members have to have the same position. So let me show you what we do require, if you could say it that way. And I think this is on your notes. First of all, we teach that believers must regularly act upon the Sabbath principles of rest and remembrance. And there are many ways you can act upon that. We did one of them this morning because unless you were on your phone working during the Lord's Supper, you ceased from work and remembered Christ. You were not earning a salary to be here (laughs) taking the Lord's Supper. And so you were resting and you were remembering. That is an application of the Sabbath principle. And so... All believers need to apply the principles of the Sabbath. You cannot be a workaholic. You cannot work 24-7 all the time. You can't work seven days a week every week. God didn't design it that way, and it does not honor him to do that. And you must remember. And so those are Sabbath principles that we have to regularly act, act upon. So that's the first thing we teach. And then secondly, to move on to another Bible principle, and this is, we just talked about this in the last couple Sundays, We also teach that believers must gather when your whole church family gathers. Now, we don't mean by that that every time the church doors are open, you have to be here. That's not what we mean. But God gives the church a certain set of priorities that we have to carry out, our ministry priorities, and we call the whole church to gather together and do those things. And when we call the whole church to gather together and do what God says a church must do, then you have to come. Now, of course, sometimes you're traveling. Sometimes you're sick. We understand all those things. But your heart as a believer must be, God told the church to do certain things. The whole church has to gather to do those things. So when the whole church gathers to do those things, I can't just decide I'm not going. That's that's not an option. And so the Believers must gather when the whole church gathers. For GBC, because we're a church that's so spread out in terms of where people live, we focus all of those things in 9.30 and 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And we try to ensure that in those two times, we cover at least all the basics that God calls us to do. Now, a lot of things happen outside of that. There are different kinds of Bible studies and other opportunities to grow. You may participate in those things, and that's great. But this 9.30 and 11 o'clock on Sunday, there's a, there's a must-ness to it if we're going to be a biblically faithful church. We have to do these things uh, together. So again, we teach believers must regularly act upon the Sabbath principles of rest and remembrance and must gather when your whole church family gathers. Now, you can see then that for many people in our church family, they're going to combine those two things into the same day. They're going to try their best to not have to do regular work on Sunday if possible. And they're going to come gather with their whole church family and do those things. They're going to combine Sabbath principles together with uh, gathering with their whole church family on the first day of the week. But there are others in our church family who gather with us on the first day of the week and set aside the seventh day of the week to not work their regular job. And so they're, they're applying the Sabbath principles on Saturday and they're gathering with their church on Sunday. And that's fine. We don't all need to agree on that or apply on that, apply that in the exact same way. 
Okay? So what I want to ask next is, what then is the significance of the first day? Why do we meet on the first day of the week? But any questions about what I just said? Okay. So then, what is the biblical significance of the first day of the week that would lead us to gather as a church family on that day? Well, first of all, every gospel speaks of the resurrection as occurring on the first day of the week. So it's a clear emphasis that that was the day of resurrection. But then beyond that, what else happened on that day is very, very interesting. Ah, uh, sorry. forgot what I was doing. Exodus. Okay, well, the projector is not cooperating. Okay, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, and it's interesting then comes the phrase, the first day of the week. Because we know that if we're going by Jewish reckoning, there's a point in that evening where it becomes the next day. So this is particularly emphasizing, really, um, this is particularly emphasizing that even though it was evening, it was still the first day. You follow me on that? It's still resurrection day. Okay, so, okay, just take your Bibles and go to John 20, and we'll ditch the projector. You're going to follow me to a bunch of passages, okay? Take your Bibles, go to John 20. We'll have to do this quickly. Okay, tell you what, do this for me. Go to two places. Go to John 20 and go to Luke 24. Because I'm going to go back and forth for just a moment. John 20 and Luke 24. Okay, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So this is still resurrection day. And on that evening, he comes to them. Now, Luke chapter 24. Don't lose John 20. Luke chapter 24. And I think we want verse 30. This is describing the same thing after he was with the men on the road to Emmaus. It says... Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So this happens in, in, in two different places, and then they come together. But notice that Jesus there, with that first group, he breaks bread with them. And that wording in verse 30, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. That is like exactly the Lord's Supper wording. And so here we are on Resurrection Day, and there is this meal, this breaking of bread, which is just what Jesus had told them to do in remembrance of him. And remember, what's Sabbath for? Rest and remembrance of creation and and redemption. And here is this Lord's Supper that happens on that evening with a portion of his disciples. Back to John 20, verse 26. John 20, verse 26 Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So here now is another appearance of the resurrected Jesus, and it says eight days later. And by our reckoning, eight days later would make it Monday. The Bible scholars consistently say that the way they counted those days, this would have been the next first day. It would have been the next Sunday that they are gathered together again and Jesus comes to them again. You don't have to turn there, but Acts chapter 2 tells us then that when the day of Pentecost arrived, so now we go ahead 50 days, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all gathered in Jerusalem waiting for the Spirit, and it was on that day that, that the Spirit came. And again, Bible scholars are very broadly agreed, including Seventh-day Sabbatarian scholars, are agreed that Pentecost happened on the first day of the week, that the Spirit was given on Sunday. Then we have two references to two different places where impulse church planning in which they're gathered on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, uh, this is the church at Troas. And it says in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, So again, it's probably pointing us to first day of the week, Lord's Supper, remembrance, just as Jesus himself did on first day of the week, resurrection day. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 16.2 talks about their giving to help the church in Jerusalem. And it says on the first day of every week, when you gather, set those gifts aside. Okay, so that's what we have outside of Revelation 1, which doesn't is a little different from the first day. So does that make sense so far? What I'm saying about the importance of the first day of the week in the New Testament? Okay, so then we add Revelation 1, verse 10. So what does John say about when he hears this voice that then reveals to him the the contents that are in the book of Revelation. What does he say? I was in the Spirit. Revelation 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, what's the Lord's Day? From the Bible itself, I can't prove that. There's no way to prove it from the Bible itself. And so there's been a variety of views about that. Uh, Some people believe that the Lord's Day was the seventh day. 
Some people believe that the Lord's Day was an annual resurrection celebration. Um, some people believe that the Lord's Day is referring to a future day, the coming of the Lord. It's a little hard to see that in Revelation 1. And some people believe that the Lord's Day was the first day. What we know is that we... I, okay, so again, I can't prove to you the right answer from the New Testament. It's not there. But we do know that from the very earliest church, they were celebrating the first day of the week and calling it the Lord's Day. So at least in church tradition, in early church history, we know that that's what happened, that they were meeting on the first day of the week. It's often said that the Emperor Constantine changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And that is absolute nonsense because long before Constantine, we know that the Christians were meeting on the first day of the week, celebrating Lord's Supper in honor of the resurrection. For example, Justin Martyr was an early Christian apologist, and in his writings to the Roman emperor about 155 AD, he wrote that the church met on Sunday because it was the day when Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. So long before Constantine, we had first day worship in the, in the early Christian church. So, oh... Uh, I really wish I could show you one slide, uh, but I can't. So um, if I tried to just give you an extremely like oversimplified history with four points, so maybe you could just write this down <laughs> for me, a little timeline, because uh, I can't show it to you. So first of all, you've got the, you've got the, the, the apostles and the very early church and you've got first day of the week worship, okay? So at the time of the apostles, because we saw it in Acts and 1 Corinthians, and the very early church, you have worship on the first day of the week. And, and, and possibly they were calling it the Lord's Day from there at the very... Okay, so that's our first historical point. Then, secondly, it is Constantine. Oh, yay! Okay, the second arrow is... 321 AD. It is Constantine after his conversion to Christianity that makes the first day of the week a public holiday. So many people are allowed to rest from work on that day. We just, uh, you know, in recent American history, that's just been taken for granted, but that was not a thing <laughs> until, until the Roman Empire. So whether that was a good idea or not is not the question. The point is just that historically, that's when you had a kind of official rest from work. Now, go ahead. The third arrow then is Reformation. So early 1500s is when you get some teachers who are really teaching that the first day of the week is the new Sabbath or the replacement Sabbath, that the first day replaced the seventh day. Now, once again, that's not, our church doesn't, doesn't teach that, um, but there, are, and there may be, well, be people in our church who believe that, which is fine. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying you don't have to believe that. It's not what we teach. But there are some people who believe that the first day is, is the new Sabbath day, the replacement of the Sabbath. And then go just a little bit after that into particularly the English Reformation and then the Puritans and early American history. And you've got a, a, a really strong emphasis on following Old Testament Sabbath laws on Sunday. And wow, that made a huge impact. Um, e even up to 
recent times or, or maybe even, even currently, you have Christian groups who, like, for example, no board games on Sunday, um, no sports on Sunday, no mowing the lawn on Sunday. Be, and it's a, you see the process here. It's if Sunday is the replacement Sabbath, and if the old covenant Sabbath laws have to be still followed, then you have to follow those on Sunday. And again, our church does not teach um, either one of those two things um, at the end of that. I've already explained what we teach. I'm just trying to give you a super simple overview of a little bit of the history that has influenced where we're at at today. Okay? So, um, so back up then from all that to what's biblically clear First, the Sabbath continues to have importance in the principles of rest and remembrance. And some Christians are also going to believe that, has, that the Sabbath continues to have importance as a specific day. And that's fine, but we don't have to all agree on that. But at least we know that it continues to have importance in the principles of rest and remembrance. Secondly, the first day of the week holds special importance in several different ways in the New Testament. And thirdly, for a church to be a church, they must have set times when they all gather together. Those are the things that I think are biblically clear. So, again, here at GBC, we teach that believers must regularly act upon the Sabbath principles of rest and remembrance and gather when your whole church family gathers. Then, due to the strong emphasis on the first day, at the time of the apostles, the day of resurrection, we choose to gather our whole church family for worship on that day, which we might call the Lord's Day. And then we welcome differences of opinion about whether a specific day is a required day for applying the Sabbath principles.